We're going to park in Second Chronicles, okay, so that you might want to look in your table of contents in your Bible to find that one. Second Chronicles, we'll be in 6 today, we'll be in 7 next week and the week after, okay? Second Chronicles 6 and 7, we've, we've been on this study of, of the interaction of faith and good things, and uh, today we're going to kind of turn a little bit of a, sh a shift and, and talk about uh, the Lord himself and um, some attributes of him knowing that you and I can trust him, okay? So that's kind of what we're going to deal with a little bit. Now, did you find 2 Chronicles 6? Let me give you some background. The, uh, the main character we're going to deal with these, these few weeks here is King Solomon. What do you know about King Solomon? Vastly wealthy, you remember? Um, very wise, and not just wise, but smart. And the, those two things together were really good. But he's really smart, but he was also, he, you remember he asked the Lord for wisdom? And the Lord said, because you didn't ask for wealth, and you didn't ask for power, I'm going to give you both of those too. And um, um, now who is his dad? Very important that we remember, especially today, because he's going to refer to that as he, he talks here to us, uh, to his dad, David. Let me give you a, a couple of other things. Now, can you imagine, I mean, m many of us probably have been in a position where, um, where we had to follow in some role in business or with me in church or whatever, had to follow a legend. You ever had that dubious distinction in your life? Well, he didn't do it that way. She didn't do it that way, you know. And it's like, okay, sorry, but I'm me. Um, um, any of you know the, the name Doug Oldham? Okay. Um, Doug was the minister of music at a church where I spent about 10 years. Now, it would have been 10 years or more before I got there, but I still heard stories about him 10 years later. He was, you know, he's a big shot. Um, and I came in as a, you know, 25-year-old uh, to do this thing. So uh, I, I kind of get that. People will say, um, uh, they'll say, oh boy, she's a tough act to follow. Or um, he's got really big shoes to fill. So you know that that's that's what they did with with Coach. You know, all the people that followed behind Coach had big shoes to fill, didn't they, Coach? <laughs> all right, all right. Now, um, with David, um, with with Solomon, he's going to have some enormous shoes to fill in his father. But the key is going to be if David, if, if Solomon can catch. Following his dad's God, he's going to be fine. We'll see kind of how that turns out. Now, um, one of Solomon's primary tasks, I might argue that at the end of his life, when, it, when they said, okay, tell us about the things you've accomplished, I might argue that, that the biggest thing he accomplished in his lifetime was to build what is known throughout history as Solomon's temple. It's the temple of the Lord. Uh, a, a, a permanent temple had never been built up to that point. The uh, worship of God had, had occurred in a tent that traveled with them, and now it kind of settled in Jerusalem. And, um, and David had in his heart, Solomon's dad had in his heart, to build this temple 
But he wasn't able to. Can you remember why? Had God said, you know, this is a good thing. You're, what you've thought about is really good, but you're not going to do it. you got too much blood on your hands. Um, he was a warrior. And um, so, you know, in, in one of the things that endears you to David is he then, he accepts that um, and says, okay, if I can't build it, then I'm going to, uh, and God pretty well said, your son is going to build it instead of you. If I can't build it, then I'm going to put all the pieces in place to make Solomon a success at that after me. So he, um, he stores up vast amount of money. Um, he um, um, has all the materials together, has the plans in place. Literally, he says, uh, son, when you come into your kingdom, your biggest job is this, but I got it all planned out. I got it all mapped out for you. And now imagine this, if somebody handed you a, uh, uh, a Fred Quinn design, okay, and then said, and here's a check to cover building it. And that would be something, all right? Yeah, <laughs> Jopi would like that, by the way, yeah. Uh, so, not only did he have the design for the house of God in place, but he had all the materials, all the money uh, is in the treasury just waiting for the job to get started. So, what we're going to deal with today is um, we're going to deal with um, the, the beginning, at least, because it goes on for a little bit, but the beginning in 2 Chronicles 6 of the dedication ceremony for the finished temple of God after it's been built. Um, Solomon presides over this very uh, solemn occasion. Uh, it's a huge celebration. And uh, so um, we're going to read a couple of things about this and, and deal with it a little bit. Now, um, look at verse 3 from, from chapter 6. Then the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. So the idea here is the whole nation, more or less, was gathered, standing there. The king turns around and blesses them. Uh, it's kind of, kind of the background here. And um, he calls attention to the Lord's fulfillment of his promise to David, his father, that David's son Solomon would reign in his place and would build a house for the Lord. Now, Solomon understood that the completed temple was not a personal accomplishment for them, although it, it loomed uh, heavily, wonderfully on his resume. But it wasn't him. The king recognized, at least at this point in his life, that it was the keeping of a divine promise and that um, the king, Solomon, was merely an instrument in the hands of of he who really is the master builder. Not Solomon, not David, but God himself. So we're going to start now with verse 12. Um, Steve Blair, would you read those first couple of verses there, 12 and 13? Get us going.
okay? Some detail here. I want you to see if you can picture this. Let's talk about this setting. He's in the outer court of the temple, which is where everybody can, can join. Uh, if you were on the, in the inner courts, uh, that's only for, for priestly people. This is out where everybody can see him. And he wants to be seen, so he builds a platform. Now tell me about the platform. Do I? It's, it's interesting because it's, it's seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet square. So imagine something like this. It's four and a half feet high, made out of bronze. I, I, they must have constructed that where it was. I can't, either that or they got to call uh, Samson back from the dead to carry it in there. Okay. Um, so there, um, he's before the people. Now, why so high? Why four and a half feet high? So they can see it. He wants everybody to kind of witness what he's getting ready to do. And so he, um, he does this. Now, he stands before the people in the outer courtyard. And what did he do? Spreads out his hands. Now, you see that occasionally when somebody's praying a blessing over a group of people or whatever. But he spreads out his hands. Um, now, would somebody go to 1 Kings 3.7? And that's going to be, you're in 2 Chronicles, so 1 Chronicles is left. 2 Kings is left of there, and 1 Kings is right there. So it's back just a couple of pages, really. 1 Kings 3, would somebody read verse 7? First Kings three seven. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. I want you to catch Solomon's humility here. What did he say he is like? Like a little kid before you. So what I want you to envision as you in your mind see Solomon dressed in all his finery, sitting on a completely bronze platform. I started trying to do the math, figuring out how much that thing weighed uh, Fred, but when I was looking at it, I thought, okay, how much does a cubic foot of bronze weigh? But then I, then I thought, how do I know how many cubic feet are there? So anyway, um, I, I know people can do that, but I can't do that. Um, but it was heavy. So he's on that. And by the way, I wonder if, well, if one of the, other than just the beauty of it, I wonder if one of the things he was doing is he wanted to be on a hard surface, a hard platform uh, that would resonate a bit as he tried to talk. But he's got his hands raised to heaven. What I want you to envision as you think about the, this part of the posture of Solomon, because it's going to change here in a second, actually in the next verse or so. I want you to think about a little boy reaching up for his father. I have a little bit of a bad back occasionally. I take stuff for it every day. I go see the chiropractor occasionally. Um, and... Um, it's interesting when I'm in Michigan or when Michigan comes here, 
one of the littles will paw. I don't really think about my back in that moment. There's no way I'm not going to bend down and pick that child up. That's one of the most delightful parts of being a grandparent. Imagine Solomon saying, Lord, I'm a child. I'm your boy. Thank you. Praise you. That's what they're going to kind of deal with here. He's reaching up to God like a child. That's a really good attitude to come to God in. Reaching up to God like a child. Okay? That implies, does it not, that I have placed myself in a lowly position, which is a good place to be before the almighty heavenly Father. Now, if you look on in verse 13 that Steve read a minute ago, he's, he, from that point then, he has had his, his arms raised to God after, after he's blessed the people. Now he's raised his arms to God and he invokes his presence and then he kneels. I'm not going to do that because I'm afraid I won't get back up. Okay? He kneels on that bronze platform, which is another great posture. It's a posture of humility. Now go with me. Shouldn't be too hard to find. You're going to go to the right just a little bit to about the middle of your Bible to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. I want somebody to read verse 6. It indicates to us the posture that we ought to come to the Lord with. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. In, um, in the New Testament, there is a word that's used and translated as worship sometimes that is a word that literally means to bow down. It's, there's, a, there's a corresponding Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's used here. Let's bow down to him. By the way, who wrote what, we, what Steve just read? David's father. I mean, Solomon's father, David. Yeah. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gets it. We ought to come to the Lord in a posture of humility. Um, okay, so when I come to God, does my literal, think about this for just a minute. I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I, and this is not a part of a uh, hill I'm going to die on. But should I come to God in any particular posture? Even personally, one-on-one, -on -one, what do you think? I know people who will only pray on their needs. I grew up in, in little bitty churches and, and, um, um, and, and visited lots of churches. The, the church I grew up in, Garvin County, was probably oh, 125, 150 people. Um, we planted a church in the Oklahoma City area that, you know, um, 
now runs probably three or 400 people. But the days that I was there, it was probably 100 people, 125 people. Um, when I was in my freshman year in college in Stillwater, I attended a little bitty church in, uh, in Stillwater that was smaller than that. And uh, by the way, Morgan, that's where I met Bob Brown, who is now in Alva, I think, maybe. Um, uh, and we would occasionally... When we were doing prayer meeting, anybody ever attend a prayer meeting? It was typically on a Wednesday night in our groups. We would share prayer concerns and share even testimonies and that kind of thing. And then everybody in the room would kneel. Turn around in a, in a hard pew and kneel into the pew and pray. Uh, there's something about that posture that stuck with me. You know? Now, does God only hear your prayers when you're kneeling. I'm not going to say that. But you might want to contemplate, what should my posture be? Um, a lot of the Old Testament saints prayed on their face. Smack, prostrate. Okay. Think about the attitude you need to be in when you address God. And then adapt a posture accordingly. This is not me sitting in a... In a a chair or a pew with a Starbucks in my hand and my, and my feet leisurely draped over the pew in front of me. That implies something, I think, doesn't it? Maybe a little bit too casual to approach the Almighty God. Okay, so now I want to, for the rest of this time we're going to have together, we're going to look at what he prayed. We, we talked about kind of how he addresses him. And now we're going to talk about what he prayed. He's in this attitude He's kneeling before a vast group of people. And uh, they're getting ready to dedicate this building. This is what, what he's about. And so beginning with verse 14, he is going to uh, begin to craft this prayer. He's going to be able to, to pray. And we have it, thankfully, recorded for us. The words that he prayed. There's some scribe there who took this all down. John? Can I get you to go to 14 and read down through 21? I hope I can do this next few verses justice before we get finished today because this is really rich and really good. And I want you to go back to where John began in verse 14. Um, uh, we're going we're gonna to fill in the blank here in a minute, but I want to start with something else. Look, across, well, look up the page at verse 10, same chapter, Second uh, Chronicles 6, verse 10. Uh, Solomon seems to have occupied in his mind the idea that God has promised David something, and he's the fulfillment of it. Uh, look at verse 10. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, for I have risen in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the sons of Israel. God, and he, he deals with it here, in uh, beginning with verse 14, it's the idea that God has kept his promise to me and to us as a people. But he, the, first, the very first thing he says, and he's, as he's invoking the presence of the Lord, he wants the Lord to be sure to hear his prayer in front of all these people. 
Now, by the way, you would think, well, sure the Lord's going to hear this prayer because there's a multitude there that he's leading in front of. Not necessarily. How, how he invokes the Lord, how he gets his attention is all important. What does he begin with in verse 14? O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you. He begins, and you can put this in your blank, he begins with addressing God's uniqueness. In what way is God unique? He is unlike anybody, anything in all of the universe. Yeah. Keep going. How is God unique? Say it again, Kate. He is certainly dependable. A hundred percent faithful. Not ninety-nine. Not ninety-nine and three quarters percent. Yeah. Always been here. Good, Patty. He's always been here. He always will be here. There will never not be God. And never have. So I, I don't want to take on a guy who is way smarter than me, but but I want to say one thing here. When, when Solomon says, there is no God like you, he's only partially right. Okay? I want you to think about this for just a second. The really appropriate expression in your prayer and mine, because we should know about this from, um, from this point, we've got 3,000 years of experience for one thing. Follow me here. There is no God but you. Now, I understand uh, the, um, uh, the other societies, the other people groups that were uh, surrounding Solomon, even in, in, since they have uh, kind of inhabited the land of Canaan, there's still a lot of people around them who worship this God or that God or these 25 gods. It's part of, the, part of the world's system in, in their day. But what do we know about those small g gods? They are not. They are not. Now, uh, in verse 15, he's going to go on a little bit with this idea. And he, and he uses a wonderful catchphrase here. But I want us to help catch it by going to Jeremiah 10, verse 5. Now, that's over to the right a little bit. Uh, who will go to Jeremiah 10, verse 5 for us? We'll get there in just a minute. John, do you mind to go over there? Thank you. Um, all right, now, catch the wording here of verse 15. I want you to catch a, a beautiful turn of phrase in Solomon's prayer. He could really pray. You have spoken with your mouth, and have fulfilled it with your hand. Now, what does that have to do with what we've been studying for the last week after week after week? What I say I am has got to be backed up with not only my words, but the things I do. What about God? He's spoken it, and he's done it. Okay? I, I just love that turn of phrase. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled, if you're reading from the United States. With your mouth you promised, with your hand you fulfilled. Now let's contrast that with any other optional God, little g. All right? John, read 
Jeremiah, what did I say? 10 verse 5? You don't need to worry about those other guys. They're like a scarecrow in a melon patch. I, I, I just love that. they got to be carried to work. And then they don't work. Because they are not. There is only one. That's the, that's the foundational piece of theology of all of Israelite history. And the best thing that we inherit from Jewish history. Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Solomon gets that at this point in his life. I'll hint at something yet to come. Now, verse 16, he says, uh, John, since you're still there, read verse 16 to us again so we hear it again. Solomon utters some words that he's not even aware of that are prophetic. Okay? Um, he says, okay, this promise is dependent on us living in obedience to the law of the Lord. Tragically, that promise will somewhat come unraveled in Solomon's lifetime, because he won't be faithful. Isn't that interesting that he's praying this almost prophetic thing? And I want you to catch the two words that are the linchpins of verse 16 here. The words, if only. If only. Now, go with me, if you will. Um, go back left to 1 Kings. It says 2 Kings. It meant to say 1 Kings. The guy who typed this, I don't know about it. Here, here's, this comes, interesting, comes later in the story, even though it's, you know, previous in, in the text of your Bible. But uh, 1 Kings 11, I'm going to start at verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon. Why? Why did he start it so well? The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. Imagine Solomon, this Solomon, doing what he's doing here on this day that we're studying Second Chronicles 6, at some point turned and worshipped a scarecrow. John, you used the word. Okay. Um... But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. History will tell us that half the kingdom went away under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Isn't it interesting? And but Solomon himself, in this wonderful prayer, says, if only. Do you wonder? If 
Years hence. Years after. When Solomon's laying on his deathbed. And he's followed the hundreds of wives that he's taken in, in not good alliances with other peoples. And he's begun to not only set up places for his wives and their kids, his kids, to, um, to worship other scarecrows. But he himself begins to join them and add other small g gods, other scarecrows to the only God in, the worship, in his own worship life. Do you wonder if when he's on his deathbed, he says what lots of people say? Oh, if only. If only. He predicts that here. He doesn't know it's prophecy. Because he thinks everything's going to be hunky-dory for the rest of his life. God, for David's sake, will not take the kingdom completely away from Solomon. He'll leave him two tribes. But that's so that the Messiah can be born of the, of the tribe of Judah. But basically, Solomon lives out this if only that he prays. What hollow, completely hollow words. Now, verse 16, uh, verse 17, sorry. When Solomon prays this in verse 17, he's recognizing here and tr truly recognizing that it's God who will be the primary impetus for God's word coming true. So it's, it's not like God says, this is going to come true, now go do it. Although he has us involved in it, certainly had Solomon involved in it. It is God himself that will accomplish what he's predicting. Verse 18 is what I would call here a part of the mystery of Let's just say it this way. It's the mystery of church buildings. And certainly it's the mystery of this temple. Look back with me just a couple of pages to two, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Solomon asks kind of a rhetorical question here, or a series of them. But who is able to build a house for God, for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens can't contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him? except to burn incense before him. Do you catch what he's saying? Who am I to build a house for God? I, he can't be contained in any building. So they're dedicating this building to God, acknowledging this mystery that God won't live here, but God will put his name here. When I come here this morning, I, I begin to see some of you and I think, God is here. And he is here because he's with you. That's that wonderful mystery. Uh, this building means a lot to me. You've got to hear me. It means a lot to me. Um, when we were running down to the final months of construction of this building, my mother died. And my mom died in June. We moved into this building in September. And I can't tell you what my summer was like. Okay? This building is sacred in so many ways to me. But God doesn't live here. He lives in you. He's placed his name on this place. Now, it's interesting here that, um, um, that Solomon acknowledges kind of this mystery here. Um, and by the way, I just got to tell you, here's the warning. By the New Testament, by Jesus' day, the, those who are Jewish, those who are kind of descendants of, of uh, the tribe of Judah and are, who are part of Solomon's lineage here, 
David's lineage, will begin to worship the building. Read about what got Stephen killed. They began to worship the building. Now, even though it'll be a different building than what Solomon built, it'll be a, a refurbished, redone. It's still, oh, we, we look to the temple. We worshiped the temple. So we've got to be careful. So Solomon, verse 19, says, he kind of acknowledges here his own dependence on the one true king. He calls himself a servant of his twice in this one verse in his prayer. And then he says something that's really hard to unravel. Let me see what I can do in, in a couple of minutes. He says, when we pray, we need to pray toward here because God can be accessed anytime. Anytime. Solomon would start this habit of praying toward the temple. Do you see that anywhere else? You remember that from anywhere else? Anybody else pray toward the temple? Well, certainly they pray toward, Muslims pray toward Mecca. It's kind of an interesting parallel, isn't it? You remember when we studied Daniel? Remember one of the things that got him in trouble? He'd open his windows and pray toward Jerusalem. It's the idea that God's there, but Daniel knew God wasn't just there. Okay? Uh, by the way, you've got to catch this. Before this building that we're talking about today was, was built, and, and not long before uh, that, even the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem has not always been a sacred place. Do you know that? Okay? Been for a long time. But before David came on the scene, Jerusalem was known as Jebus. It was run by some mean motor scooters by the name of the Jebusites, who said, you ain't coming in here, and David says, hide and watch. That's why it's called the city of David. He conquered it. Right in the middle of Palestine, right in the middle of the land of Israel, this, this um, stronghold of Jesus, Jebus, is conquered and becomes, becomes known as as the city of peace, Jerusalem. It hasn't always been that way. So, he says, we're going to pray toward here because we can be, because God can be accessed here. But verse 21 makes it sure here that, that Solomon understands that the true residence of God is in heaven. In the current sermon series, you heard Marty talk last week about the fact that we've been give, given permission to call God our Father in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. Not Jerusalem. Not 14,600 North Portland. He's here. Because you're here. And he's with you. Okay? True residence of God is in heaven. So, let me close out with this. I've run out of time. The last part of verse 21 has caught my attention. Listen, Lord, to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place from heaven. Hear and forgive. Could it be that the most meaningful prayer is the prayer for forgiveness? I wonder if that's the truth. I think, and all of our minds, lots of our minds, are kind of captivated by the story of, of Billy Graham in, in these days. How many times did he people call people to repentance that led to forgiveness? 
essence of the gospel. Could it be that the most meaningful prayer is the prayer for forgiveness? And Solomon says, rightly says, when you pray to him, he will forgive. He'll hear from heaven and forgive. Here's my question. Are you asking? Are you asking? When the Holy Spirit says to you, now why did you go that way? And by the way, he didn't say it that way. That's why I said it. Okay, tell me, son, why we're doing this this way. I've taught you better than this. Let, let me steer you a different way. I need to immediately be saying, Lord, forgive me. You're right. You're, you're always right. You're teaching me a better way than that. Forgive me. Put me on the right path. Are you asking for forgiveness? Here's my promise. Here's the Lord's promise. He will always forgive. I want to live in that. I hope you will join me in that.